Hey, hey, welcome back to The Socialist Shelf, the podcast that cares about good fiction and changing the world. I am Jacob here with Joss. What's up? And uh, today we're we're doing something a, a little different. Yeah, um, I had my coffee that, this time. Yeah, yeah, in that uh, in that um, our we're, we're we're hearing from a millennial. It's time for the millennials to speak, Joss. I don't. I, you, you heard the the millennials. You know we they've not gotten their their say on this podcast in the past. Uh, it's it's been all it's been all old fuddy duddies, and and now it is time for the. Uh, for the the younger younger folks to have their say, what, what do you? Yeah, think? yeah. Never let it be said that. Uh, never let it be said that we're not a diverse outfit here on the socialist shelf. We believe in representation across you know nationalities, across races, across you know um, cultures, you know. And now age is another one of those metrics. Yeah, there we go. Because we have Gideon the Knight by Tasman. Uh, I'm sorry, Tamsin Muir. 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 How would you say that? Muir is that's how I would say it. I had a teacher uh, named uh, named Muir back in the day, and Muir, uh, it's a yeah, that's what I recognize. When I listen to the interviews of them with like uh, 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 an axe people with an accent saying because she's from she's from New Zealand, it, it's all managed, but yeah, Tamsin Muir, uh, which I I don't think it's a um, I don't believe that's a uh, pen name, but it does sound kind of like a uh, fantasy pen name, sci fi fantasy pen name, but solid name. So if, if, sure. if a person named Tamsin weren't in the fantasy writing business, you know, what, what would you even be doing with yourself, TBH? Well, as we'll get into, originally she was going to be in the video game writing business, but um, pretty, pretty adjacent there. Yeah, a lot um, of overlap, a lot of overlap. I'm thinking right now of um, Terry Pratchett's daughter, Rhiannon Pratchett. There you go. Yeah, she did the, um, she did Overlord. She did a few other games. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, this book Gideon the Ninth. It was published 10th of September in 2019. And uh the sort of the premise of it. Wait, is this the most recent book we've done? It's gotta be, right? It's gotta be, yeah. Yeah. Um by probably like probably second to um uh three body problem. Which yeah and eventually and eventually you know there is a trajectory here. We will be doing books from the future. Yeah I guess eventually that's how it works. Yeah. Um uh, I, the the question the question is doing books from the future um is 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 uh is is that referring to the fact that in the future we will be doing books that haven't come out when we are now speaking or do you have like a methodology by which to access books oh well, i mean if i had if i if i had such a methodology right now you know we would have already done it you know actually kind of think of it if i could access books from the future we would already have done an episode on that um you know maybe at time of recording that's already the case um and never let it be said again you know we're going to be doing people from different ages different cultures different races different species even we're gonna get some aliens in on this that's true though i um i do have my i do have my suspicions about uh about kurt vonnegut's planet of origin he does call himself a man without a country yeah um, one one has questions did he in fact come from Titan, the moon of Titan, and it does Sirens of Titan. That title perhaps give us the hints we need to decipher the clues. I mean, at the time of at the time of that future record, you know, countries will have been abolished. You know, that's true. And and Kurt Vonnegut will look down with a smile as as the world burns. By the way, it's also only listenable on Spotify Brainjack. So you know, the forward march of progress is not kind to everybody. Sadly, 
Yeah, no, the many, many like uh, chimpanzees had to die for for this podcast to be brain jacked. Well, you. if if they could listen to the uh, to the episodes that their sacrifice has wrought, you know, they would smile from chimpanzee heaven. Are you saying uh, two hundred members of my chimpanzee generation died to bring me this podcast? Your chimpanzee generation. I, I'm I'm just I'm referencing the book. I think they have different generations than we do. I, I maybe, but she says in the book, 200 people of my generation died to bring me life. So, oh, oh, yes, 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 yes. See, you're you're more focused, and I'm still like up in the clouds saying inane stuff. See, I was I was doing a reference. See, the 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 there's like uh, since I'm editing this episode, I got to decide whether do I want to uh, show the realism, the the joke not landing, or do I want to cut it so it sounds like my joke landed perfectly? Uh, see, the decision will have to be made. See, uh, the fact the that I'm saying landing, this means I'm definitely not cutting it. Well, the joke not landing becomes the joke, you know? That's true. That's true. I become the joke, really. But um, no, to to uh to bring it back around, Gideon the Ninth, 2019, um, is a work of basically gothic sci-fi uh, magic fantasy stuff. It's fun. It's a it's a fun blend of genre. I mean, like, look up the cover, you've got a a, a big strong woman wearing a, a a skull. It's not actually mask; it's paint, but it looks like a skull mask with bones broken all around her. You've got like this gothic—I wouldn't say horror, but like borderline horror element meets space meets fantasy. And uh, a big part of the selling point is it's lesbian necromancers in space. And I mean, what more could you want? You know? Yeah. What it's more and in terms of horror, I mean, it's more—it's more Agatha Christie than H.P. Lovecraft. You know? I mean, certainly there's incomprehensible forces at play here that uh, we're only getting a glimpse of if that right but it's much more of a locked room mystery than it is a horror story much more of a locked tomb mystery really aha there we go right am i right okay gideon Um, herself couldn't have said it better exactly well the thing is um the the thing is gideon does say a lot in this book because it does read a lot like a first person book but we'll i will get into that it's close third but um um, let me talk a little bit about Tamsin Muir, Muir, Moore, whatever. Um, I, I, I'm, um, you know, I'm, I, I've just been, I've been baffled by this. The, I'm, I'm baffled by this last name. I've been listening to too many interviews in like with like New Zealand and like British dialects. It's really fried me. Um, I'm sure there's still names that don't exist in, um, in, in our, in our uh, version of English. That's true. Um, so, but yes, let's talk about this author. Um, she's she's not had a super long career. I mean, Gideon the Ninth is her debut novel. Uh, m- remarkable success uh, as a debut novel, by the way. Um, but yeah, born in New Zealand. Or no, I'm sorry, not born in New Zealand, raised in New Zealand. She was born in Australia, but moved to New Zealand like eight months later. So basically born in New Zealand. Um, she, this was in, uh, 1985. So she is a true millennial. She's an older millennial, but a millennial nonetheless, age 38. Um, and yeah, was raised in New Zealand, uh, and was basically her, from interviews basically said her childhood was very much defined by, you know, being uh, a lesbian in a family that's like, was actually marked by, um, what she calls gay tragedy. She had several, uh, LGBT family members uh, die due to like harassment and 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 have shorter lives due to like their their treatment. She talks about having a what she describes as a butch aunt 
who who died young um, and knowing she was a lesbian and, and feeling fear coming out and talking about that um, really defined a lot of her childhood um, in the 90s and, you know, and going into the early aughts um, when she was a little older and into high school and stuff. She said that really defined her. And the only place she felt comfortable being open with that is online, specifically um, on like live journal and fan fiction websites. Um, so, and, and if you've read this book, if you've read probably 10 pages of this book, you probably could have inferred she spent time on fan fiction websites. Um, this is a very, this is a very much a book of the like Tumblr and pre-Tumblr generation of like, of like writers, of people who really grew up in internet forums, writing back and forth. She talked about, she wrote a lot of lesbian fan fiction um, behind like paywall, not paywalls, but uh, password walls on live journal. She said that was the only people she came out to for years. And in fact, um, and this is a horrifying story that she tells with actually great humor, um, which, uh, but when she actually came out as a lesbian in high school, she got the, she got the shit kicked out of her and, and like by a, by a fellow student, she said people who she'd known her whole life just watched her get the shit kicked out of her. Um, um, and where, where did she go to school again? Uh, just, I, I don't think it was, I don't know the name of that. It was just a high school. Mm -hmm. uh, this was in high school. So I'm not sure it was in New Zealand though. New, got it. Got it. Um, but she said this would have been in the late nineties. Um, or I, I'm sorry, the early aughts at this point, um, or, or around the turn around 2000, 2001. Um, but she said she also had a very supportive family despite all that. It's just, she talks about those contradictions coming into it, but she said like a notable thing of her getting the shit kicked out of her and emerging from that and like having, she said she emerged with that for, with a kind of like what she called like humorous dignity. Like the fact that she got the shit kicked out of her and then she just like went back to her seat kind of smoldering and didn't like make a big show out of it or anything. And she said she found like a sort of humor in that, like a almost like sitcom-esque humor and put some of that into Gideon. And you can see that, like Gideon just getting the shit kicked out of her and then just like, uh, well, I still have my dignity if I glare at you from across the room. Um, and that was like, you know, that was like formative for her, but she wrote a lot online, engaged a lot in online spaces and felt accepted through like internet culture. Um, she did end up like growing up to become like interested in education. Um, she, she worked in various jobs and uh, was interested in becoming like an educator. And then, but she wasn't so sure about it. And then she decided, oh, she was going to go into video game writing because she liked writing her fan fictions. But then she like wasn't really sure what she was doing. Anyway, a friend tells her, why don't you attend this workshop, Clarion Workshop in San Diego? This is in 2010. And it's a sci-fi fantasy writer's workshop. And she said, and she quotes, this is where she first saw, quote, a story as its architecture, not just its surface, end quote. Um, notably, 2010, George R.R. R. Martin was presiding over the Clarion Workshop and several other uh, fantasy authors. She said she realized there like what a story could be beyond just sort of like an outlet for uh, expressing a singular point. She saw it as like a sprawling living thing and uh, grew to appreciate it. And since then, she knew she was like, I, she was going to be a professional writer, even if, you know, she starved, she was going to be a professional writer um, and just wrote and failed a lot for years um, until she finally got some success in uh, 2015 with a uh, deep water bride, which was a, she got a nebula nom for, and that was like a, a short story, wrote a handful of uh, short stories, wrote a handful of novellas, 
Um, and eventually just like broke through with Gideon the Ninth in 2019, her debut novel, which she said she said she wrote to her 17-year-old self, basically. Like, what did she want to read when she was 17 years old? And she wrote that. And it was Gideon the Ninth. And and uh and since then she's you know experienced pretty significant success uh with the sequel novels, which neither of us have read. Um, we're speaking with the context of just Gideon the Ninth, but um, Harrow the Ninth has come since Nona the Ninth, and you have uh, later this year, I believe, Electo the Ninth will be coming out. Out, and she has actually already been um, uh, given a contract to write a Western cyberpunk novella trilogy. Um, hmm. The first book is called Go Marching In. That's all we know. It's probably going to be coming out in 2025. Is the guess? Uh, so yeah, that's like she's a you know she's successful. She's doing very well. Um, she's been nominated for all manner of awards, the Shirley Jackson Award for Short Fiction, Novella, Yuji Award, World Fantasy Award. She uh, won Locust Award for Best First Novel for Gideon the Ninth. Um, was nominated for several Hugos, again, for like uh, Hero the Ninth. I don't believe she won for that, but she, she's done quite well. Um, and again, is like very early in her career, uh, considering that her first novel was 2019. Also, remarkable pace uh, to have published three books um since 2019 and have a fourth one coming out this year just gotta say props to that um yeah especially especially with the um there's a considerable depth of i mean of course she's got the uh the theme naming springing pretty much fully formed from her imagination you know rich rich with uh biblical with historical with uh literary references of course but also the prose the prose is I mean, it switches back and forth from this irreverence. I'm glad he brought up that it's that it's um, a, lo a love letter to her 17-year-old self, basically, because there's definitely a trace of that. And it's a juxtaposition I really like. It's a juxtaposition mm -hmm. of Gideon's total irreverence with this solemn... Um, how would you describe it with the with this with the solemn sort of pomp and ceremony of the of the of the setting and among it it shot through with a whole bunch of genuinely innovative prose that will drill down that will drill down on you know this is but this is something that this is something that almost every aspect of which i think had a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of uh, sitting down and uh, and considering how it fit how it uh, how each piece fit together there's some there's some stuff in, that feels a little more thrown in and we'll uh delve into that well but that's that's few and far between she uh yeah she describes like her moment of like her eyes opening when she was getting taught by martin and several other great writers at the clarion workshop of seeing stories as like full buildings as architecture she said she'd mm. only ever seen even in her own writing like two-dimensional stories and then she realized oh for every, every story has like this just absolute web of um, of subtext and and knowledge and hidden secrets and and experience beneath it, whether the author is showing those things off or not. And you can really feel that. In fact, it's basically in the text of the novel itself, considering like what I would say is probably the most interesting part of the novel is its setting, which is this just gigantic, decaying, ancient Gothic mansion. Uh, set on this like water planet um, with like skeletons running it, uh, which I find to be the most interesting probably part of the novel. Um, so you have this like literal architecture underneath the novel itself. So you can see, uh, you can see how that like that works in. I also want to note that like 
um her her writing like i said very much influenced by like fan fiction spaces very much influenced by things like tumblr and like uh fandom culture she's like very you know deep into what she called fandom she said she was very deep into harry potter though she's as a queer woman you know since felt uh for good good reason um pushed out of those spaces um she's you know very into like you know quite, quite a few things like that uh video games she actually spoke uh one of her most recent interviews uh spoke at length about Disco Elysium and how like uh, she considers Disco Elysium perhaps the best written uh, thing to come out like in the last 20 years or whatever. I still need um, to finish that game. Uh, so good. Yeah. She said uh, her quote on it was uh, that the writers of Disco Elysium should be banned from writing because it's not fair to other authors to have to like work in the same world as them. <laughs> um, and and she talks at length about the queer themes in Disco Elysium in that interview. And you can look it up yourself. It's, it's interesting. But um yeah, um, to, to 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 bring it back around though, I will say, and it's a it's a it's a thing that we like kind of have to contend with. Uh, is her prose is so shot through with like her internet background that you can it, it does like at times it you know it gets very memey like direct references to memes, and it it has like definitely moments where you can almost feel like oh that line almost felt out of Wattpad, you know, like you you have this. You have this like dichotomy and it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? All authors emerge from the context in which, you know, they were trained and they learned, you know, whether that be, you know, their schools, whether that be, you know, um, the books they read, it would be, be, be any manner of thing. Um, and, and, and you can kind of feel that coming off of her. Um, uh, she does have an interesting quote about it, about like her own, like that criticism of her. Um, and she was talking about like the references she makes in her books and the like internet connections. And she says, quote, I love all the utterly impenetrable references to things that were hip at the time in Gilbert and Sullivan's operettes. The novel will date. It will date horribly. And then at some point it will go all the way around to what a wonderful period piece. Unless of course we have all died due to climate change End quote. Um, and I thought that was an interesting perspective on um, that, though it is like a criticism she re received is like, like, yeah, though this book, despite like all it's like lovely writing, will sometimes have the character say like a studied the blade reference or something. And, you know, I don't I don't hate that, certainly. Um, I, I but, think I do. But go, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, that well, that's not something I hate. The thing that I do hate is where she's like, oh, my God, you know, you can't just ask people why why they're ex like it's. It's a it's a reference that doesn't make sense within the context of the book. Um, and because of that, it really does violence, I think, to the setting, because it's I mean, yeah. there's one thing um, there's one there's there's something there is something to be said, certainly, because you're right. You know, the Gilbert and Sullivan comparison is apt. The the loving adherence to the era in which it's written, to the environment, indeed, in which it's written doesn't just fall out of the sky you know there is that basis to it but at the same time like do we i kind of resent having to having to wait like decades for the meaning of that to be lost on the reader right because that's sure. something that that's going to stick out to us no matter what i will say of all the books i've read that are like chock full of contemporary references it works a lot better it does um, yes like if you try and read a lot of like YA that has come out in the last like 20 years and like, and like books that try and like be hip with the kids, it, it really, 
like this, I, I don't know that it's, it, 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 this works is significantly better. And like, yeah, there is like an element of this that like one could argue it's like almost in a way pandering to a certain type of like demographic, right? The like mm-hmm. sort of online um, queer, like Tumblr girl, like very much. But I would also say it's not really pandering if she just wrote it to her 17 year old self either, right. you know? Um, or if it's pandering, it's it's very honest um, in 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 doing so. Um, and it's an it's an interesting it's an interesting dynamic. I don't consider it like to be selling out as a result. I think it's just, and we can talk about it more as we get into the book itself. But I think it, that's just like an emergent property of where it comes out of. Like considering it comes out of this culture, of this online space, uh, warts and all. Um, it's going to develop these things. And I also want to note one more thing is in 2020 and early 2021, there was actually a sort of, I won't even really say it was like a big push, but there was this, uh, a subsection of like some online communities actually really did have some like problems with Tamsin. Um, they, they, they found some old fan fiction she'd written. Right. Um, oh boy. That dealt with, um, and it really wasn't even fan fiction. It was more just like, it was only barely tangential to like a fan thing. And I did not read it, but, but I, I, I read some summaries and stuff. And it was basically dealing with like themes of like pedophilia and stuff. And she wrote about um, in, in this, in this story she'd written a decade before was about like a, a girl overcoming um, sexual abuse. She was a minor overcoming sexual abuse. It is not a story that fetishizes uh, pedophilia to be completely clear. Uh, right. However, there was this like moment where there was like this group of people who were like basically um, with the subtext of this is like a predatory lesbian oh, God. Um, saying, see, she's a pedophile uh, lesbian, whatever. Like that, that was like the language. And you, I looked through some Twitter threads and stuff and it was very like, very much like just old stereotypes, basically pulling stereotypes yeah. of like the queer groomer. And like, if you actually look through the text of what she wrote, it's like a pretty bad. It's like, I only skimmed it. It's a pretty bad fan fiction. Like it's not very good, like in a right. sense, but it's not, it, it's. And, and so she actually talks about that a lot about like the uh, queer author being hemmed in by like, both the expectations of like a more progressive sect of like people who are like, Oh, well you have to be the ideal queer author, but also still like coming under a very conservative old style of fire from like the right as well. And that, yeah, it's a very queer author, especially queer women live in. It's a very, it's a very sort of Galileo's middle finger dynamic, right? Mm -hmm. Where, yeah, you're getting it from the people who are absolutely coming after her in bad faith because she's a queer woman writing about her experience, you know, and they don't want, you know, that sort of person writing. But, and yeah, you also get it from, you know, a more, I would say, well-intentioned though misguided source who, you know, I mean, the reality of it is, if you're writing honestly from your experience, you know, you're going to run afoul of somebody who is just sick of reading, oh, here's another LGBT tragedy story, right? It's interesting. She actually says, and she has a great quote, um, and she's a really great, inter- she's got some great interviews. Um, um, I might link a couple um, if I remember to. Um, but she uh, talks about 
she has this whole, she said there was this whole period where this wasn't like a cancellation. I don't even like to use that term, but whatever. But there was like a group of people online who were like, and, and like spoiler alert, I guess, you know, you're going to get spoiled on a book if you're listening to this episode, uh, that there's like queer death in Gideon the Ninth, you know, Gideon the Ninth, you know, dies in the book. And, um, and people like came after her and said like, Hey, like you're doing the bury your gaze thing. Like aren't, aren't, aren't like are queer couples not allowed to get a happy ending or whatever. And she said, listen, she said the LGBT community, she's like, is a, has been out on the dance floor for a long time. And there's also, and she says, and I wanted to pick the dance floor, but I also wanted to pick all the blood that's on the dance floor because there's a lot of it. And she says, she yeah. describes her books as blood on the dance floor. She's like, here's the thing. She says, you can't tell me not to bury my gaze when so many gays I know are buried. You know, hundred um, percent. And also, also she buries to... one gay out of many. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of people die in this book, but like, yeah, you know. but like, it's an interesting point. Like she, she makes this like point about like all the things she's written to date, her short stories and these are around death and around this and like making light of it, but also dealing with it. And she says, yeah, she like talks about like her experience as a queer woman has very much been like, there was this like sort of, uh, carefree aspect in one hand like this like idea of like pride and celebrating oneself and like you know embracing like a, a sort of a joy that comes with that and also embracing the darkness that comes with that and she said she felt like she was able to build some fusion of that into these books um and i, I do think in a way that it is successful um i do think it is successful in doing that but it is interesting um but I, I just want to note those like two like kind of controversies things just because when you Google her name, like controversy comes up and you look and it really is just pretty absurd um, criticisms because I was like, oh, well, and it's not like we wouldn't have talked about her if we I thought I wouldn't acknowledge if I thought she genuinely was a problematic person. We talked about fucking H.P. Lovecraft and like like Tim LaHaye, like it, it's, <laughs> you know, and Bill Clinton, like it's not like a, it, it's not like we're all like above that. I do genuinely just think she's you know, got a bad rap on that. But I did want to address that just because it's a thing that comes up when you look her up. But I, I find her to be very, uh, I find her to be very interesting. I'm interested in watching her career as it develops. I'm going to read the rest of these books. But, uh, you know, without further ado, unless you have anything else to say on her, uh, I think we should get into Gideon the Ninth. Yeah, no, you, you've, um, you know more about her than I do, you know, and I want to know more about her, certainly. You know, she's... I mean, she's genuinely, I mean, just from reading this, you know, you can't write something like this without being genuinely inventive and, um, and very, very, very deeply knowledgeable about certain interests that show up um, in, in the uh, narrative dueling among fencing among them. Um, we'll get into it all, all, you know, it's, 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 it's a person that I would genuinely like to shoot the shit with. And, and it is interesting. I, I do look forward to seeing her more in the future because it looks like Tor publishers have basically just given her a blank check to like write what she wants to. Brilliant. Um, going forward. Um, because she was so successful with this and so in, while writing an inventive story. So like, I think she'll come up with cool shit. I mean, what a hell, what a hell of a debut novel, you know? Um, yes. Yeah. It's anyway. genuinely, genuinely yeah. unlike anything that I've, I've read before. Anyway. Okay. Um, well, I've talked for most of this. So, Josh, you want to get into a little plot summary here, getting into the characters, getting into whatever is going on in this wacky, deteriorating universe? Yeah, deteriorating. Well, and it's 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 deteriorated before is the thing. Yeah. We'll get into that, won't we? Because yeah. you 
I remember you posted that um, that SpongeBob meme, right? That's like, you know, I love lore. I want to talk about lore, you know, and there is a lot, a lot of lore that goes into this. You know, it's and it's a it's a space fantasy setting, certainly. So you get you're going to get a certain amount of that. Right. It's set in this star system around this orbiting around the star called Dominicus. 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 Yes. And it's got the it's got. Okay, this is a really stupid question. How many planets are there? Nine, right? Nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah nine planets, nine planets and a star. Um, Unless they, it, like, unveil a secret 10th planet in the next couple books, which, like, they absolutely could. They could. Well, like, to one more time, just to be clear, we have only read this book. Um, any knowledge that we have of the next few books are, like, incidental and, like, absorbed incidentally. They're not being referenced directly here. I know there is at least one listener of this that has read the books um, and loves them very much. And she may be like, you know, when we say things like, yeah, there's nine planets, she might be like stamping the floor for all I know right now. <laughs> but based on the knowledge of this book, there are nine planets around the star dimension. There are nine planets, yes. And there almost weren't because 10,000 years ago, uh, there was a cataclysm that wiped out the star system. The sun went out, all life on these planets was destroyed. But then... Hate it when that happens. There was this, yeah, there was, yeah, there was this guy, there was this guy called, he is now called the Emperor, uh, the, let me see in the first page here. Yeah, the, the Emperor. dying. Yeah, the, the Emperor, the King Undying, the Kindly Prince of Death, the Necrolord Prime. He was this enormously powerful necromancer who somehow was able to revivify the sun, revivify the nine planets basically bring the entire system back to life and 10,000 years on that's our setting is this empire that spans this system and it's split into nine houses of course one for each world and it is on this ninth house on this ninth planet that our story begins and the ninth house is the this ninth planet plays host to uh, something called the locked tomb and it's kind of a synecdoche there because it's you know one representing uh part representing the whole the there's the locked tomb on the planet and then the planet and the house are kind of referred to interchangeably as the locked tomb in that locked tomb there is a force that the emperor defeated one assumes it was involved with the great cataclysm ten thousand years ago um and it's sealed away there he he defeated it but he couldn't destroy it and the ninth house is this uh, this cult that's kind of uh, sprung up around the tomb to their their aim as a house because they're very they're shrouded in mystery from like even the other houses they don't talk to anybody um, but their aim is to guard the tomb and they've ended up worshiping whatever's in there yeah it, it's it's um interesting the uh sh you you can't help but think um it, the, the ninth house is very much it's like described not only as like that but it's like you know more austere it's dark uh it's shrouded in mystery and it says a lot of like people from other houses will like that are like weirdos will defect sometimes through history to the ninth house uh and i can't help but think of like you know the watchers on the wall or whatever from game of thrones mm -hmm. um which considering george R. R. martin like was actively involved in like making her want to be a writer can't can't say that that's not a direct inspiration maybe it isn't i don't know it's just an interesting yeah. thought but it's very much like that it's these like wardens on the outside of the universe 
who've just been out there so long they got kind of wacky with it like they just yeah. started being weird and it's not you know it's not to the extent of you know i will take no wives i will father no children sure. right but there is well it's far enough not in the, on purpose at least well yes it's far enough it's far enough in the future that you can basically just vat grow kids like there's one offhand reference to xx carry which is like you know traditional um traditional uh, reproduction but that's considered uh uncommon if not weird and yeah, uh, but but you've got your main character gideon who um and again you might find this out in a later book but we don't know she is not of the ninth not really she her her mom was a uh her mom was some refugee some some rando who died bringing gideon down to the locked tomb and uh you know, never they never really knew her. They never never really knew her mom, and she became an indentured servant vent to the locked tomb, to the uh, ninth house, simply because well they raised her, and it was like well we paid for you to uh, eat and uh, and live, and so you are our indentured servant for that. Um, and she, you know, naturally has some problems with that. You know, being raised in this just creepy ass house with notably. No one except a handful of like just weird freaks who are left, like old weird freaks, a bunch of skeleton servants, and then essentially like very few people even close to her age and only one person within like 10 to 15 years of her, that being the daughter of the house, the uh, sort of the princess, the the reverend daughter, Harrowhawk, who is a master necromancer, uh, and is, uh, you know, destined to become her goth GF, of course. Yes, Harrowhark Nonagesimus, which, mm. I, I, I mean, we'll say that again. Harrowhark Nonagesimus. This is, this is not a, you know, this is not your average, like, you know, Bob, Steve, like, Annie, like, you know. The names are shot through with meaning. They grab you by the throat and they scream, read a book. I did think it was really interesting where at the very beginning when Harrow walked out and just said, hi, my name is Ebony Darkness Dementia Ravenway. I thought that was, I thought that was kind of odd, but uh, I <laughs> I'm honestly shocked. There's not a reference to that meme in this book. I, yeah, you know, especially, especially with somebody in with a background in Harry Potter as Tamsin Muir or had, you know, you can't, you can't enter the Harry Potter fandom in the internet space and not run into my immortal at some point. If we get to, if, if I don't know, I, I just realized that um, at some point we have to do my immortal. Well, I mean, you can't do my immortal without doing a dramatic reading. Can you? That's a good point. Good point. That's, that would be a great Patreon, but anyway, go on. Uh, uh, in, in a conceptual world where that existed but anyway uh, uh on, on we go but yeah we've got this we've got gideon who is actually does, she doesn't really get described till later in the book um but she's like you know a big very muscular uh very muscular i'd say girl like she's 18 19 years old um uh red hair you know just kind of kind of beat up but like you know still like pretty attractive probably it's un, kind of unclear um, like it's it's unclear because she's painted up most of the book, like as it is. But we know she's buff and she's ginger. We know that for sure. Buff, um, ginger, and 
has the only pair of aviators maybe in the entire solar system. Thank God. Yes. Which, she does yeah. like aviator sunglasses and she thinks it's cool to wear them inside, which it is. Yes. I'm, I'm completely Cobra fine with this. from Cobra. I'm completely fine with this again. And, you know, from the very first sentence of the book, right. You get that juxtaposition of again, pomp and ceremony with her total, just not, not an inability to give a shit. Uh, in the myriadic year of our Lord, the 10,000th year of the King Undying, the kindly Prince of Death, Gideon Nav packed her sword, her shoes, and her dirty magazines, and she escaped from the House of the Ninth. Yeah. Like, it's interesting because she's raised in the Ninth House, but because she has no necromantic talent, and because she's just this, like, indentured servant, um, she's not really raised of the Ninth. Like, she's taught everything, but it all bounces off of her and she's never given a reason to, you know, uh, uh, embrace the culture as her own, you know? Um, and that's for a very good reason. And that's because, uh, it's because they don't treat her like one of her own. And so she is, you know, inherently irreverent. She learns a lot about, we don't know where she gets these like dirty magazines and these like comic books from, but she's really into, really into those. And like, really into like these like comic book tales of like, just random bullshit happening. And of course, like just different stuff. Like she's, she's very much like influenced by that. And she's just obsessed with the fact or the idea of being a soldier, just going off and joining the cohort as it's called, who is the cohort fighting? We're not really sure. Uh, there's some other groups that are being fought. Maybe that's important in the next books. Maybe it's not. Um, I, I don't, I don't really mind that. I, we don't know. We just know there are wars going on. She wants to go do that because she's kick-ass with a sword. She is a she is like, you know, a butch lesbian who's good with a sword, you know, and she's been trained because that's what she's good at. That's what she's talented at. She's not stupid, but she feels she's treated like she's stupid in this house because it's like being smart in this house means being a necromancer. And she doesn't have any magic in her so far as we can tell. Um, so she's just not cut out to do that. It is interesting, like the idea of a indentured servant in a house where like skeletons do everything. Um it well, skeletons really... skeletons do everything, but as we'll see, like there's a spectrum of necromantic ability, right? Where sure. they can they can do everything, they can fight for you, they can lift and carry stuff, but not perfectly, right? They get well, brought it seems back. unclear what her actual role is in the house, and I think there just isn't much of one. Like she doesn't have I don't think she had a lot of like work to do as an indentured servant. Yeah, except to, except to be, I mean, she trained with, um, you know, Crux and Aglamini, right? The part, the um, the uh, Seneschal and the uh, Captain of the Guard of the House, right? She was she's brilliant with a two handed sword, yeah, um, and that's what she grew up learning. So you know, that's that's basically, I mean, that's basically her function, right? Is to she's not she doesn't have any necromantic ability. What she does have is you know physical ability. Like you might as well. Um, you know, you're wasted, you're wasted as a laborer and you are, you know, there's, there's many reasons, um, cards on the table. I looked, I looked ahead, um, at the plots of the next two books. I'm not going to disclose anything, but like, there's, there's various reasons why she's ended up where she has. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. But I mean, like there is, um, I mean, there's stuff that's disclosed later in the book that we can talk about more, but like, it's not. Her time in the house is very much just kind of being like the whipping girl for Harrow. Like, yes, yes. That's actually the term that Harrow uses at one point. Yes. 
Hero is just the sort of princess of the house and she treats Gideon terribly um, because she's just a, you know, dark, she's kind of just got darkness in her. She's a resentful person. Um, she's got some like trauma for sure. Um, and we know um, from pretty early on that Gideon's parents who run the house are dead. They are dead and Harrow has been basically doing necromancy on them, tricking other necromancers to not knowing, because she's a very good necromancer, um, not knowing they're dead. Everyone thinks they've taken a vow of silence. And Harrow has basically been running the show and also keeping the other houses from knowing the ninth house is kaput. Like it's yeah, they're they're dead so, by their own hands, too. Something has driven them to that point. Yes. Um and but but basically the uh the book starts with Gideon's like however many, like 19th or something escape attempt. 86. 86th. Okay, it's it's a ton. She's tried to get off planet a ton of times. This one fails too. Uh, Harrow is always foiling her escape attempt. Um, and it, it, it makes, and, and Gideon asks her, why do you do this? And Harrow answers because, and this is the quote, because I completely fucking hate you. No offense. <laughs> um, which is a very like teenage girl thing. just like shitty teenage girl thing to say. Truly Cupid has spoken. I, I, I love, I, I do love it. Like it's, that is, um, I, I just like, because we mentioned it earlier, I want to like draw a line for my problems with the book um, is not like the irreverence or the just like teenagers talking like teenagers. Um, my like really only problems with the books are when they don't, when there's like this weird outside interjection, um, which I can get into, but I do really like the uh, the like sassy nature of the characters when they do actually sound like themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and I really enjoy from the very beginning that as much of like a cold, stone cold, uh, gothic, terrifying badass as Harrow is, you can still feel her rehearsing that line before she says it, like to herself over and over and over again. Like these are just two like 18, 19 year olds who are like, emotionally stunted and 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 like working out like their weird traumas and attraction to each other in like just bizarre angry ways oh yes because you don't you don't talk the way that they talk to each other unless you've devoted serious thoughts to the other person you know how to push their buttons and i want to note like also like it's funny because like okay so I i'm not like too worried about like revealing things that it reveals later in the book um like Gideon is aware of Harrow's deception and like Gideon has that over Harrow, but Gideon's like, and Harrow would never kill me though. And it's like, why not? Um, and the reason is because she doesn't want to kill Gideon, obviously, but like Gideon's like got reasons why Harrow wouldn't kill her. But like, the thing is, I'm pretty confident. Like if it was anyone else, Harrow would just kill them. Oh, 100%. Like, she's not above killing people. Like, and she's what in, consequences she would she face? She's literally like the 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 uncrowned queen of her house. But anyway, um, basically the starting plot point of this book is that the the Lord Undying, the Great Emperor, has summoned uh has summoned a necromancer from each of the nine houses to go through a challenge. Or, or I guess each of the eight houses aside from the ninth, because there's there's nine and his the emperor's is the first. So summoned eight necromancers to tr potentially become a lictor. And what is a lictor? 
not, I, you don't really figure that out till like later, but essentially it's like a super powerful immortal necromancer. Yes. So like, yes. The emperor the power of the king. The emperor is, I mean, they literally describe him as God, right? The man who became God and God, God became the man. Yes. yes. So if he's God, right? The lictors are assistant God. In fact, there's like a weird Christ analogy going on. Um, including the Lichter theorem literally being written underneath on a whiteboard. It is finished. Um, there is a is, lot of, there's a lot of biblical stuff in here. Somebody says, come and see at one point. Yeah. There's, there's, there's the, like the um, God and man being the same flesh. You've got like um, the thing with, there's a lot like the, the, the theme of sacrifice, uh, the, the like the theme of like blood sacrifice um it's it's unclear i had trouble finding you could find a million and one like posts about it but i had trouble finding like a good concrete sources on like the meaning of everything um and i don't know that i need all that either i don't think there are one-to-ones but it is interesting to see like that being thrown around in here yeah um, yeah the end notes do do some uh heavy lifting in terms of explaining the stuff you know like yeah. explain the characters names and the symbolism that sh- it's also the source of that massive spoiler that um that i uh texted you about the other day which is again gideon dies yeah so you know if you're looking if you're looking at the end at the end matter to um decipher a little bit of all the uh of all the books theming you know do be warned about uh about uh that spoiler uh namely that gideon dies yeah, you wouldn't want to read that that Gideon dies. Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly before not. Before you find out that Gideon dies, yeah. Indeed. Uh, but yeah, so so they need a necromancer to come to the first planet, and they the necromancer has to bring a cavalier with them. Um, has and to by bring tradition, it. by tradition, the cavalier has to wield a rapier, and that's uh, rubs Gideon the wrong way, because her whole life she's trained with a two-handed sword, a spy-hander, basically. And she's, and she's like buff as hell. Like, she's not She's not a precision fighter. She can be because she's very talented, but like that's, she is a, she is a strength build, not a dexterity build, you know, like she, she's, she's big and strong. Um, So she's got to, there's this whole bit about, she's got to learn how to use the rapier and she's got to be trained and, you know, proper manners. And a big thing that she's got to do is she's got to be Gideon the ninth, even though she's not, her real name is Gideon Nav. She is not of the ninth. She does not give a shit of the ninth. But she's going to go along as a cavalier because this is her opportunity to actually, for once, get off this world. And if everything goes right and if Harrow is able to become a lictor, she has the full promise that she will be able to actually permanently leave. Yes. Um, Yes. Which is her. I mean, again, you know, she's not doing this out of some you know patriotism, out of some devotion to the emperor. It's literally just I want to see the world. I want to see the galaxy. And, and and she doesn't see much of it, but she does see one particular place, a very interesting place. Yes. Um, which Canaan House. Like, yes, on the planet of the first. And this is like the most interesting part to me because it's this, this beautiful, gothic, gigantic mansion that's made on the water uh, that is just falling apart after like 10,000 years of God, the emperor not being there. And my... What I chose is like my quote from this novel is actually describing it because I find it to be like the novel, like working it one of it's like how the novel works for me, like the, the language of it, my, like the language at its best, which is a quick say again, 
Which one? Uh, the quote is, quote, the whole place had the look of a picked up body, but hot damn, what a beautiful corpse. You know what? That's actually that's actually literally <laughs> that's actually literally my um, first choice was that was that specific paragraph. Actually, you know what? You took the end of it. I'll take the beginning of it because this really stood out to me. We're getting this part out of the way early this episode, folks. Uh, okay, back in its day, at least it would have been a monument to wealth and beauty. In the present, it was a castle that had been killed. And from, you know, you and I are both writers. That's really striking. You know, it's it's a really easy way to get prose rolling, which is to assign uncharacteristic elements to something. You know, castles kind of ordinarily be killed. And then you unpack what has stirred that juxtaposition in you, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's that sort of, again, it's the you picked the uh, irreverence and I picked the solemnity in terms of what this book is uh, juxtaposing. Right. And and it it it's very much written in this. It is I I appreciate that they did she didn't do the easy thing and go first person, um because it would have been really easy to do first person in this book. Um, yes, and, that's and I don't hate first person all the time. I'm not anti first person necessarily. But what do we I, what do we think? What do we do with that? Because like you know it is third person. You know it is a narrator, not necessarily omniscient narrator. Um, not at all. No, it's a very close third person. It's very close third person. Yes, but with you know the what a beautiful corpse. Hot damn is it feels like an interjection from Gideon, which I which tickles me to no end. Yeah, I, I, that's how I read it. Is it's very much like a. Um, I mean, there's nothing that you see. As far as I could tell the whole time, nothing you see that Gideon does not, right? You're not learning anything Gideon does not know. Uh, You're not seeing anything Gideon does not see. All your perception is limited to Gideon's perception. Not all the language is necessarily things Gideon would think, but you are limited to Gideon's eyes, Gideon's ears, Gideon's brain. So I know what I I just sorry. I just had a thought that um, that will make sense once we unpack exactly where this goes. (laughs) (laughs) sorry go on but yeah it it makes for an interesting it makes for an interesting read i think it would have it would be a weaker novel if it was in first person even though that would probably been easier to write 100 um, considering how much first person ish stuff there is in this so uh yeah definitely appreciate that um and but i can feel the the elements of like i honestly am almost certain that there is a draft of this that's in first person um yeah and it's a large point per portion of a draft yeah, again, like for, for reasons that will become clear once we unpack the lore of this a little more, you know, it makes much more sense um, from third person, you know, from, shall we say, not tying the narrative to one specific identity. 